Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And this is a kind of special episode for me because my original co-host when we started this podcast, Reverend Charles Roberts, is joining me again and promises to do so on a regular, semi-regular basis. So welcome, Charles. Andrea, it's good to be back. I have missed these uh, podcasts, uh, but it is good to be back in the saddle, so to speak, and I look forward to many engaging and stimulating discussions concerning the issues of the day and God's law and God's truth. Exactly. Now, for those who started listening to our podcast well into after we started, Charles was with me through episode number 40, and then because he had pastoral and family issues to deal with, uh, he took a hiatus. Like, I don't know if at the time, Charles, did we know it was a hiatus? <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you mentioned this because um, a lot of times either the term hiatus or he's got family or uh, whatever duties, that's sort of a code word for something else. But uh, in, in my case, uh, we, I really did have issues to deal with. Our church was in the process of withdrawing from a, uh, excuse me, an increasingly liberal trending denomination and less and less reformed to one that is much more so. And that took a little bit of heavy lift, lifting. So yes, it was in, indeed that. Here we are. Moving Here we forward. Are. Yeah, I know a lot of times when someone vanishes, people want to know what happened to that person. And sometimes it's good stuff, and sometimes it's not good stuff, and sometimes it's just necessary stuff. So you're back, and I'm very yes. glad about that. Yes, as, I'm, as am I. So in the past, I've always enjoyed the fact that you and I can talk about things that aren't necessarily settled in that either one of us is saying, this is what our listeners should believe, but we like to take a subject, explore it, and as the title of the podcast is, get behind the original question to see what the Bible says. So today, we're going to take what I imagine is going to be a controversial question, simply, is organ transplantation a blessing of modern medicine. Yes, and behind that question is one that is very important, and it really goes to the very heart of just about everything we talk about and are dealing with in our daily lives and in society and culture, and that is this, who ultimately defines what it means to be human? You know, when we're talking about modern medicine and organ transplants in particular, uh, that obviously comes into play. And so we have to settle that question in our minds and decide how we can settle it from the very beginning. Otherwise, uh, we're going to come out with very radically different answers. And one of the things that happens, especially with this topic, is that it's very easy for it to get emotional. For example, I have two people in my past, both of them have since passed away, who were both the recipients of transplants. One was a young man who had received a heart at the age of one, and another was a grown man, a Navy veteran, who had received a kidney. 
And if you try to answer a question like the one I just posed biblically, but then you're seeing these people's faces and then you can be accused of, well, I guess you didn't really want to meet them since you had met them after they had had their transplants. It doesn't change the fact that we could be engaging in something that displeases God, regardless of the blessings that we enjoyed by meeting people who receive transplants. And I want to get that out of the way at the beginning, because there may be people who are listening to this who have received a transplant, or there's someone in their family who's still alive because of it. That's not the orientation we're taking, is it, Charles? No. And it's a very important thing to, as you said, get it out on the table and talk about it right away, because I was chatting with someone about this podcast and right away, the question I had was, oh, well, then you don't think so-and-so, someone whom we both knew and know, uh, should have gotten XYZ transplant. And of course, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, In other words, you wish so-and-so had died. That's uh, kind of the way it goes. But as the behind the question uh, issue indicates, there's something far more fundamental that we have to decide first. And it's not to say that if we are doing something that in some way, either minor or major, is outside the boundaries of what God says he wants or doesn't like. That doesn't mean in each and every case it is the ultimate absolute catastrophic sin or evil. I mean, the, the fact is, anytime we stray from God's law and God's word, most of the time we're not doing so for reasons that we think, at least on the surface, are, oh, well, let's do something to, to violate God and shake our fist in his face. No, it, it always comes uh, with very sincere, if not sweet, uh, motivations. And that's why it's so deceptive and so powerful. And that's why, especially in this area of what it means to be human, and especially with the intersection of medicine um, and, and modern medical science, this becomes such a crucial and in some cases confusing issue because we have departed so powerfully from the paradigm, the ultimate model of how God defines human life and what his purpose for it is. Exactly. And that's why I think at first, before we actually take the deep dive into describing what takes place with a transplant, we need to kind of look and say what you said, what does it mean to be human? And in Dr. Rush Dooney's book, Faith and Wellness, he talks about how modern man looks at human beings with a mechanical model. Now, for those who are older, you're going to remember the television show, The Bionic Man or The Bionic Woman, who both of these people in different circumstances experienced a horrific accident and they were put together. At the beginning, it says, we can rebuild them. And so they became superhuman because they were bionic and when something went wrong, they could go in and get the part replaced, not unlike if you need to switch out something in your car or computer. So let's talk a little bit about the mechanical model of man. Yeah, I was thinking about that uh, in preparation for this discussion. And uh, when I was a, a student at the University of South Carolina, uh, much longer ago than I care to remember now, I worked in the bookstore at, on campus. And I remember someone had ordered a book. And um, it was a title that caught my interest. It, the title was Man, a Machine. And it was written by a French philosopher, last name of Lametri. 
And it's very much in keeping, actually he wrote prior to Darwin, uh, but it was very much in keeping with some of the mentality of the French revolutionary era of the time that uh, animals, uh, and, and also he was applying it to humans, were basically mechanical devices. And I remember uh, an era that uh, is really abhorrent in, in terms of medicine and that sort of thing uh, during that time when they would practice in Europe, in European medical practice, um, vivisection. Now, for people who don't know, that means operating, in, in this case, on a dog or some other animal while they are alive, cutting them open and removing their organs and that sort of thing. And the rationale was, well, these things really aren't sentient beings. They're just like machines. And you say, well, what do you, you think is happening when you slice the poor animal open and it screams and howls? Oh, that's just like a horn blowing. You know, mm-hmm. It's just a mechanical reaction. And so this man, Lemaitre, was extending that model to the human being. And um, this is the foundation of, as Dr. Rushduni points out in that chapter that you're, you're, you're mentioning, of um, most pagan conceptions of what it means to be a human being. It is grounded purely uh, in a naturalistic, humanistic way of thinking. And like you also said, the, the bionic man, uh, he used the example of cars. You know, you, you need to replace uh, the brakes. You just replace them. Um, you, you need gasoline, you put the gasoline in it. And they, the conception is the human body is the same way. And it's ulti- ultimately perfectible. The whole idea is somebody encounters a problem with an organ system. And if this organ system isn't fixed somehow or other, that person's going to die. And so often they go on a list. They're on a donor transplant list so that if um, a heart, um, lungs, liver, uh, whatever, comes available, then they're notified and they go into surgery and they go ahead and they get this organ. That's how it's usually done. The question is, how is it done? And regardless of how it's done, does the Bible seem to indicate this is something that should be done? And that's a very uh, challenging question for the reasons that you mentioned uh, at the very beginning. And that's why the question behind the question is so very important. And what does it mean to be human? I want to back up just a second and talk about, let, let's see if we can put ourselves in a, in a situation, say, in the ancient Near East, the Middle East, what we call it today. And let's say some Israelite or other is walking through the land of Canaan and he trips and falls and breaks his leg. He And th- there's no way at that time to sort of medically solve the problem of a broken leg. Maybe there was some practices that could solve the problem. Or maybe uh, he got into a, a fight with another person or with an animal. He actually lost part of a leg. Well, it's not the same thing as if uh, some you know piece of wood or something was rigged up to help the individual walk better. You're not transplanting an organ from another human being into that person. You're, you're just simply giving them an assistance in terms of, of walking and, uh, and, and fixing them, so to speak. But the problem is that when we start down a certain path, again, for the most noble reasons, uh, unbeknownst to us and very deceptively, if we're violating a standard of, that God has given us in his word, we set in motion certain things that ripple out like a stone thrown into a pond, going in directions and resulting in things that are too far out for us to necessarily deal with and see at that particular time. 
And so we have to think about these things in, in, in the long term. Now, many of us, you know, were born into an era where medical devices, medical advancements were just what we knew because that's what had taken place. So some people are saying, well, it's already practiced. It's already in practice. So you can't turn back the clock. But I'm not sure that that's a biblical way to look at anything. If we find out something is wrong, we don't then say, well, you know what? We just have to live with it. Yeah. And it's sort of like, a, 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 to, to use a phrase, a seamless garment. I mean, what is it that causes people to need transplanted organs? Uh, and in, in the case of some organs, it, it's, it can be directly related to diet. And so if we are violating God's word in, all, in any other area of life, it's going to have a ripple effect in another. And uh, we, we find it, it's just, like I said, it's a seamlessly connected issue to where if we are not doing what the Lord says in terms of how we are to maintain our health, in terms of what we eat, for example, then it's going to result in the, uh, of us burning out uh, certain organs sooner than we should. And I remember, as you do, I'm sure, I believe the, 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 uh, the physician's, the surgeon's name was Christian Barnard, South yes. African surgeon who did the very first heart transplant, uh, or at least maybe successful. I think they'd been done before. Maybe he had done, but you remember what would typically happen when they would transplant a heart? I don't think the first attempts were successful. The body would reject it. Exactly. And so that, that then puts the physician in the, the place of being God, you know, we, we will perfect the human being from the standpoint of our non-biblical medical science. Uh, the human being is a machine. We can replace the parts, and if the body starts rejected, well, we'll just work on that innate impulse from the body to where it will accept it. And that, again, it, it seems like a, a, a really wonderful thing at the time because somebody is in need of a heart, and you, you get the transplant, and you... you uh, make it such that their body won't reject it. But what's the next step from there? Where, where do we, what is the long range view about what we're actually doing here? For those who have never been associated with someone who has received a transplant, um, they're constantly, almost forever, going to be on what's called anti-rejection drugs because their body says, this isn't you. And so then there needs to be a, what do you call, a, a remedy for that tendency. Now, the young man that I mentioned who at one had had a heart transplant, by the time he was eight, he contracted cancer. So now this poor child had two competing interests. One, his immune system was so shot that he was susceptible to what causes cancer but at the same time, they didn't want his immune system working that well because then he would go into rejection. Yes. And so that brings up the whole issue that we've been talking about is who makes these ultimate decisions and what are we to take away from the fact that the body is telling us one thing. If the model is the me mechanistic one and that uh, humanity can work all things that are possible, that are available to it, then that is the bright future we have. And, you know, where we find ourselves in this day and time is, uh, is a direct result of this same sort of model that, that, that again, the seamless garment that I've mentioned, uh, because the same impulse to do something like that first heart transplant or kidney transplant 
is also the impetus behind, say, um, somebody, a man deciding he wants to become anatomically and surgically a woman or vice versa. All these things are connected. Right. If we don't answer the question, does God's word tell us that to proceed this way is to proceed in obedience, and let's make obedience the criteria, then it's going to be very hard to answer any other questions. Now, let me share with people what happens most of the time during a transplant situation. So if Uncle Harry dies in the next room and you don't discover it until two minutes later, his organs, in most cases, are not going to be usable. Right. I think there are research grants in process right now where they're trying to see if it could be. But currently, unless his heart is beating, his heart's going to be of no value to someone else. So what happens? What happens is it's decided that his life doesn't have a good future. There's this expression called he's brain dead. And the family is usually convinced that the noble and um, gracious thing to do and generous thing to do would be to agree to put him on a list that says his organ or organs can be harvested. Nobody likes the term harvested, but what they're going to do is they're going to take it. But here's the interesting part. And I know you know this, Charles. You have to wait until you have a recipient and then they sort of do what you described with operating on someone who's still alive in order to get a beating heart. Now, after his heart is removed, he will die. But the question is, when did he die? And what was the immediate cause of death? Dr. Rastuni makes reference um, in the book you referred to earlier, Faith and Wellness. Uh, and I know you read this as well. And I'm just going to quote him here. He says, on one trip, I was told of the pressures put on some heartsick and grieving parents to sign over their child's body for parts while the child was still fighting for life. He said, one wonders, given the contempt for life shown by some of these medical men, can they be trusted with the life of perhaps uh, of a perhaps dying child whose, quote, parts can be used elsewhere? Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about. When, when we get to this point, then you're going to have to exercise a lot of, in my estimation, and I think uh, from my standpoint, the, the, the biblical estimation, a lot of misplaced trust uh, in the intentions uh, of medical people. Uh, it's not to say that medical people are bad, but I think we've seen, especially in this day and time, that the impetus on the part of some medical practice is not so humanitarian as it is driven by profit. You know, my dad was a physician. And he told me that when he was practicing and even when he was in school, they needed to be able to do autopsies for the doctors to be able to learn things. However, after someone had lost a family member, a loved one, it was pretty obvious at times why they had died and there was no need for an autopsy. Yet, it was one of the rites of passage where you had to go in and convince the, the family to say yes to the autopsy, mm -hmm. right? Well, they have special teams that go in to talk to these grieving families who are on the cusp of potentially losing a loved one 
So it's not the regular staff or the nurses or the doctors. They have special people who go in who are trained, for lack of a better expression, to make the sale. And again, you're putting somebody in a situation and you're making the standard how many people could be helped by what you're doing? And then there's often a litany. There's the cornea, there's the lungs, there's the liver, there's the heart, there's all sorts of things. And now the person has to say, hmm, am I selfish if I want to see if God's going to heal my loved one or should I just say yes? Yeah, it, it raises uh, a whole host of challenging questions and issues. And I think it's good at this point to uh, reiterate what we said at the very beginning. And that is, uh, there's no intention to wish ill on anyone who has received a transplant or anyone who may be waiting for one. Uh, the, the point is not that, say, somebody has a bad heart, a bad kidney, a bad lungs. And in the biblical view, it's, well, that's your, just your tough luck. God has ordained that you be this way, so suffer and die. No, 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 no. no that's not what we're saying. But the point is, the, the solutions to these things that are being proposed are part of a larger issue of looking at the overall meaning of human life. And we want to get to a point in following God's law and God's standards of living to where human beings can live healthy lives, to where they don't need to be even thinking about such things. Uh, and, and we can see from the biblical record that uh, people of ancient times lived much, much longer than we do today. Uh, that will be, of course, dismissed by you know, people who believe in uh, the myths of modern science, uh, but it is a fact. It is a biblical fact, and um, <clears throat> that is something else that uh, Dr. Rushdoony, the point that he makes uh, in this book is that uh, medicine and life generally, and let's, let's speak of human life, he says it is a religious fact, inescapably so, and what is driving the desire? You know, let's say you do have somebody who's willing to donate an organ. I know of a situation. I'm not going to be too specific about it, but a certain family member needed a certain organ from someone, and the, the person the person voluntarily and willingly said, okay, that's fine. I'll be willing to help out so-and-so. You know, that's a little different scenario than you've got the situation you described where somebody's near death and, you know, the, the pressure comes in from the, quote, salespeople to uh, get this done. Um, so there are nuances to this that are, some situations are different than others, but obviously this becomes such an industry for lack of a better word. Um, you can't wait necessarily for the right candidate. So what do you do? You start either harvesting organs from prisoners, people in jail. And I think, uh, I'm going to ask you, cause I, I believe you sent me an article recently. I don't know if it was there in California uh, where people in prison were, were having to deal with this specifically. Is that, that correct? Well, you can go back to China, right? China incarcerates a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And if there is a need for something, it's very easy to just decide that this person who qualifies, that th there's enough of a match for this person's organ to go to someone else that you start what people usually refer to as the slippery slope. Yes. And so here's the problem with the slippery slope. If the um, boulder at the top is there precariously, and there are all sorts of good intentions as to why that boulder should be there, at the point at which the ground underneath starts to go, 
and the boulder comes down and now we have an avalanche, where did the problem originate? And who are we going to blame for the fact that things get out of control? So think about it. If you devalue people, and some people are better than other people, then think of all the homeless that exist in our country. What if a homeless person who doesn't appear to contribute much to society is a great match for the son or daughter of someone who has the resources to pay the exorbitant amount for this to take place, will most people say, you know what, he's just a bum. Think of this opportunity for this young person to have a full life. How many people are comfortable with that scenario? Sadly, I'm afraid uh, too many. Um, and that, that is a perfect example of where human beings are sitting in judgment upon the quality of life of someone else and deciding quite godlike that they shall not live because of this reason and the, the things that you've described. And then we, we get the other scenario where we've already moved into this very bizarre and dystopian territory where types of human tissues are being grown in labs to produce organs. Uh, and we probably are well on track to actually uh, producing some form of human being, quote unquote, whose sole purpose will be to develop and, and donate organs. I mean, these are the things from, you know, crazy science fiction movies. But we see now that in many cases, uh, certain people like Aldous Huxley and um, George Orwell, uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, they had an understanding about the way things were moving that was far ahead of their time. And so we see these kind of things happening now. Brave New World, I believe there was a certain class of human being that that was pretty much all they were. Um, of course, I don't think, I think at the, in that, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've read that, uh, people were not having children by the natural birth method. Uh, the, the human beings were grown in test tubes or in labs or something. And they were grown specifically for certain purposes. Some would be just purely laborers. So they were intentionally developed in such a way that they would have a very low IQ and not much expectations about, except the very base levels of physical entertainment. Uh, so this puts us into a territory where uh, we're not only on that slippery slope, uh, we're moving into an area where human life becomes completely distorted and doesn't mean anything anymore. Exactly. And just in case people um, are confused with something you said earlier, when you talked about someone who was willing to donate, all right, an organ for someone else, there are some donations that do not kill the donor. Right. You can donate. I mean, God gives us two kidneys. You can donate a kidney if you're a match. Now that leaves you with one kidney and you may have a kidney that fails in the future. So then you too need to have either a kidney transplant or possibly you die. You can donate part of your liver because the liver is an organ that regenerates. So nobody has to die in that kind of donation situation. Bone marrow is the same way, right? However, if I decide that I have a friend who has his or her future in front of her and could use my heart, if I go ahead and donate my heart, which means my life will be over, in essence, I have made a decision that only God has the right to make, who lives and who dies. 
Yes, exactly. And in um, in the chapter of uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law, where uh, he addresses the issue of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, uh, he raises this point um, about hybrids and hybridization. Now, Dr. Restini speaks there specifically of um, the laws concerning plants and, and, and ha- animals and, and that sort of thing, but it, it also trends toward this, this very issue. You know, are we not in some way motivated by the hybridization? Maybe not in the case that you just gave, uh, that's a different sort of issue. But the drive here, the impetus, is the absolute perfection of the human being uh, from a worldview and from the standpoint that sees man as the decider of all things. Human beings are, are the determiners of their future, of the meaning of life, and indeed what it means to be human. I mean, I can speak personally, not from a transplant standpoint, but I have uh, a couple of artificial joints, but no one died to provide those. And maybe in some sense, I'm a little less human because of it, because I don't have the original joint here or there, whatever it may be. Uh, that's a different issue. We'll do whatever <laughs> separate program on artificial right, choice. Right. Well, let me just say this. If we're talking about an individual who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, physical death is not the worst thing that happens to a person. Now, if you're outside of Christ, physical death outside of Christ means eternal damnation. And I see a lot of people making the argument that they don't want to die. Well, I don't think God commands us to want to die, but we shouldn't look at, as you said, the perfectibility of ourselves and our health as the ultimate goal. If being healthy and being well doesn't have everything to do with service in the kingdom of God. So we can misplace our emphasis by deciding that a bad heart or a bad kidney means that all systems go, it must be replaced. Yeah, and I think that too, um, it's necessary to keep coming back to this point about the intent of this discussion uh, and the challenges that we face in trying to um, move forward. I started to say dial back, but we're not really interested in dialing back. We want to move forward on a biblical model because that's what's been missing in all of this discussion in medicine and just about every area of modern life. And um, in the book, uh, Faith and Wellness, which, uh, by the way, is available from the Chalcedon store, encourage everyone to get a copy of it, uh, Dr. Rushduni says this, he says, what is urgently necessary is a strictly Christian model for medical practice. And notice he says, this will take time and serious thought to develop. It must begin with systematically biblical presuppositions and with humility. And he makes the point that we've been following the mechanical model for such a long time, um, and then we have non-mechanical models such as holistic medicine, uh, but those things are infused with oriental mysticism, he points out, and he makes this very interesting observation. He says, it's strange that some who resent any reference to the biblical model for medicine and medical science are just quite okay with experimenting with such things as acupuncture. Right, which is based on a different world and life view. However, as somebody who has received acupuncture, it's not necessary to receive acupuncture to then subscribe to a system of beliefs in as much as if acupuncture has identified certain pressure points, certain ways in which to do certain things that 
can be helpful to the body, that these paradigms are paradigms. None of them created the body. So if we discover things, but again, if we're just going to make the statement that you don't become less human because either you have received a part that didn't start off with you or that um, somehow or other we're trying to replace the defective parts as opposed to help heal or improve the defective parts. Yeah, it really makes a difference when you, if you have the blessing of uh, having a physician, uh, let's say a general practitioner uh, who is a devout Christian and understands even the basics of what we're talking about. I have had, had, had that privilege for the past four years here where I live. And um, it is a very different thing. I mean, all of my life, I've been treated by doctors, many of them very good men, uh, good women uh, who are excellent at what they do, but they've never approached what they do from a biblical standpoint. Or if they do, they do like the typical evangelical where well, the Bible doesn't really speak to any of these issues. It's all about, you know, piety and individual salvation. But when you find someone, and there are some out there, uh, many of them actually, uh, who who take the approach that's very different than uh, what you need is a transplanted organ, or you need this drug and that drug, and that's the solution to uh, all the issues. They've sort of given up on the idea that, uh, okay, you know, if you quit eating this and, and get some more exercise, it might help, but let's face it, you're probably not going to do that. Besides, we're all, you know, sitting at home and looking at our computer screen. So, look, uh, if things get too bad, uh, we'll just find an organ donor and replace your organ. In the meantime, here's some medicine that will reduce this, that, and the other. And yeah, it might uh, kill you 10 years earlier than you would have, but take it and be happy. Right. And nobody could say how long you would have lived otherwise, because again, that's not something that any human being can do. But let's go back to the person who receives the transplant. That person is always under the threat of rejection. The person will almost always, as I said, be on drugs. And because you're deliberately suppressing the immune system, things like cancer, things like autoimmune diseases can then be something that these people have to deal with. So you really ask the question, is time the way you determine whether or not something is worth it? And as my husband likes to say, these are all first world questions. <laughs> Nobody who lives in um, an area of the world that is just trying to make sure they have enough to eat, don't deal with these issues because quite frankly, they don't have the resources nor the insurance system to go ahead and pay for it. So would we even be talking about this if the finances were an issue? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, uh, Ford is right. Uh, this is a first world issue. And I, it would be interesting to uh, find some person in a more primitive culture where uh, they have no exposure to modern, and I mean really modern medical science, and they would have no conception that something like an organ transplant could even take place. My guess is uh, they would probably be initially very... Um, offended, if not uh, disgusted by the fact that, you know, you, you would do something like this because the understanding is from, a, it's probably, let's say, a pagan religious worldview, nevertheless, that a person lives and a person dies. And this is just the order of things. You know, we, as you alluded to just there, we have had that understanding in the past when 
uh, our previous cultures were more biblical in their foundation, uh, that we, it, we are such that it is appointed once for us to die. And uh, our goal in life is to live a godly life, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, as the catechism teaches. But, you know, we've had the substitute of modern secular medicine that tells us, no, your goal is to live as long as you can, to give as much exercise as you can, to live a healthy life, uh, to be positive all the time, to do what Oprah Winfrey tells you to do, and all the rest of it. <laughs> right. But that's not the biblical model. Uh, right. And so it, it requires uh, a total going back to what God says, and as Dr. Rastuni mentioned in that book, with humility, but with a serious determination. And you mentioned pagan cultures. You know, just in case we think that we are so far advanced, there are many chronicled occurrences where they would cut people open to eat their hearts, or they would devour um, the blood of babies because it was going to give regeneration to whatever ailed them or additional powers. Now, think about the abortion industry that goes ahead and has people come in to pay for the embryo to be removed. And then they go ahead and turn around and sell that to medical researchers who are now going to experiment on these specimens in order to quote unquote, help mankind. Is it really that much different? I certainly don't think so, and it, it trends toward exactly what I was describing earlier. Certainly, abortion is one example of where this leads uh, with man is a machine, and the, the pregnancy, which according to Scripture, uh, is a blessing from the Lord and a part of our creation ordinance and mandate to uh, prosper and multiply and subdue the earth, becomes sort of a, a problem you know, like a bad brake system, or you need the transmission changed. Uh, so you take care of that, and then you just, you're, you're good to go. Uh, this is a very different perspective on human life and what it means to be living. And so therefore, we move to the point, as I've mentioned, where maybe we are actually cultivating uh, medically and scientifically the growth of certain individual human beings for the sole purpose of taking their organs to use them for people who are deemed far more worthy to be alive. And just in case people think that things have not been written about this, I remember reading a book, oh golly, it must be over 30 years ago, called Weeping at Ramah. And it's hmm. all about this very thing, that people are being preserved until elites go ahead and need a particular organ. And then there was a movie back Oh, I don't know, I think it was probably the 90s, called Extreme Measures that talked about the same thing. And at the time, I'm sure most people would say, well, this would never happen. Yet when you find out what's going on in China, when you find out that this could be the accepted practice once people were convinced of how noble and humanitarian it is, we could be where People decades ago said, no way will this ever happen. And see, that's also within the context of some things that have come to light. Some of us have known about this for a while, uh, but especially in the era we find ourselves now uh, with the COVID pandemic and such things as that, 
we are learning that there are some people with a whole lot of money and a lot of uh, influence who really think that there are far too many people in the world. And their goal, and they've spoken publicly of this, it's not hard to find it in TED Talks and on YouTube and things like that, is to reduce the world population uh, to about 100 million people or so. And so I know in one case, uh, an individual who very much believes this, as a matter of fact, his father was one of the founding members of Planned Parenthood, was asked, well, how, you know, how can you do this if that's the goal? Well, you know, you can have a war and that kills off people, but that's kind of a nasty way to do it. So his recommendation was, guess what? A vaccine. So th this larger issue of organ donation, organ transplant, it's part of a much larger picture that has some very, very troubling aspects to it. And God's word says to us, you must not go down this path. I have decreed what for you is life and what is health, and you have the choice. You obey God's law and God's word and be blessed thereby and prosper, or you follow the alternatives, and it leads toward the dystopian nightmare, uh, at least for those of, uh, those of us who are not in the upper echelons of uh, the modern gods who run the world. So now I'm going to freak people out. <laughs> we have accepted the idea of blood transfusions. And in a very real sense, a blood transfusion is an organ transplant. If you look at the blood, which the Bible says the life is in the blood, and we have narrowed it down to blood types. So yes. if you have O-type blood, you're the universal donor. If you have AB-type blood, you're the universal recipient. And then there are those of us who are A's and those of us who are B's. And then we have a positive and negative associated with them. But I have never gotten a satisfactory answer to if a man donates blood and it goes to a woman, how is it that we're introducing a Y chromosome into a woman's body? So I've never gotten that question answered. But recently, I was at a talk where one of the frontline doctors was talking about COVID and the vaccination. And he wasn't so much anti-vaccination as he said, you have to be um, careful. You need to understand that there are um, ingredients that you might not want. But then he talked about this mRNA which actually is something that will now become part of all your cells. And most of the people in the audience were like, I don't want to take this vaccine right away. I want to see what happens. And there was a certain percentage who said, um, I don't want to take it at all. And I never will. So he opened it up for discussion or questions. And I got up to the microphone and I said, I have a question for you. If I am someone who is determined not to have taken or not to take this vaccine, what happens if I need a transfusion and I get blood that has this mRNA in it? Mm. Well, you heard the entire audience gasp. And I saw the doctor's face go very serious. And he got very, very pale. And he said, um, I'll have to circle back with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the old expression is he blanched. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he didn't, he said, I've, he said, I have never thought about that. Yes. So 
keeping in mind that everybody has probably thought transfusions are a good thing, now we have to be concerned if, on principle, we decide that we won't get this for any number of reasons, but if we receive a transfusion, that we've, in fact, done the very things that we don't want. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, in, in most cases, you can donate your own blood for transfusion purposes if it's needed. So that's one way to eliminate that, but it goes to the larger issue of what we have been talking about. And that is, what are we doing to improve human life? Are these means that are approved by God and his word? Just because we reach a point in our, I'll use the term again, secular understanding of life in reality where we can do something, does that mean it should be or has to be done? And the attitude of modern humanity has been yes. We must, this unrelenting move forward uh, that, well, actually it's moving backward from our standpoint, uh, to perfect humanity, to create the ultimate human being, the, the ubermensch, the superman, um, not the guy with the cape, but, you know, the person who is sort of like, uh, like the Terminator, you know, but a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is, uh, this is the move. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that about the blood because I'm sure you have them in places all over California, just like they are in most larger towns and communities, these uh, blood banks where uh, people who are in need of some money can go donate plasma and blood and they get paid for it. Right. So So the expression is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think that's the template we have to use because if we don't think these things through, we are going to encounter situations like the family that I was telling you about that had been told that their son needed a heart. They actually were given 20 minutes to make the decision because the heart was available. And if they didn't take it, there was no sense of when the next one would become available. So they went ahead and said yes. But I must tell you, as much as I loved knowing that young man, the next 16 years of his life were not easy. And so the question is, from an objective point of view, what was the right thing to do when you consider all the agony that everybody in the family went through? Yes. And that brings us back to the original question behind the question, who ultimately defines what it means to be human? And I think in terms of our discussion, uh, we have come to see that from the biblical standpoint, there is only one person who can do that, and that is Almighty God. And the perfect person was the person who came to earth without sin. If people were more concerned about their sin and whether or not they were in right relationship with God— I think a lot of other things would fall into place, but too often these questions supersede and say, okay, let's get religion out of this discussion and let's talk about what's the best thing to do. And for the Christian, I think you agree on this point, that's the primary question that has to be answered personally. And then when we're going to make decisions in terms of policy that were governed by principle. Absolutely. All righty. Well, we mentioned faith and wellness. You also mentioned the Institutes of Biblical Law. I look forward to anyone who hears this podcast and shares it with someone who's knowledgeable. I'd appreciate it if you got back in touch with us. 
Um, you can do so through out of the question podcast at gmail.com and give us your take. As we said at the beginning, Charles, these are not the definitive answers. More importantly, we're posing questions that people should consider. Yes, and that we recognize that there are people who have benefited from transplants. We wish them well, including our friends and relatives and loved ones. Uh, but this is about the larger issue of uh, rethinking where we are as a culture and a society in every area of life and wanting to get to a profoundly biblical model for the purpose of blessing and prosperity. Indeed. And welcome back once again. Good to have you on board. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.